You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Lauren Fultenberg, Alyssa Hurst, and I'm Nicole Militello. Right now, the criminal justice system in the United States is in the spotlight with growing calls for reform. So for this episode, we wanted to take a closer look at the death penalty and some new research that was just released on how it relates to race and gender. We're talking to University of Denver criminology and sociology professor Scott Phillips, who worked on two of these new studies. He says the death penalty raises numerous issues about the criminal justice system and poses the profound question about whether a state should be allowed to execute one of its own citizens. His research was recently featured in the New York Times with an opening line that read, Black lives do not matter nearly as much as white ones when it comes to the death penalty. He explains the important history leading up to this research and what this revealed about the death penalty. This study uh, was interesting because it connects to key constitutional cases in the history of the modern death penalty. And so I undertook the study with my colleague, Justin Marceau, who's a professor in the law school at DU. And it helps to understand a little bit about the history of the death penalty and key landmark Supreme Court cases. So the first important case occurred in 1972 called Furman versus Georgia. And the Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional as it was currently being administered. And the justices were concerned about arbitrariness. And some use that term to mean that death sentences were imposed randomly. Uh, Lots of people could have been sentenced to death, very few actually were. Why person A but not person B? Other justices used the term arbitrary to mean that it was patterned by facts that shouldn't matter, like race and social class. So the Supreme Court struck down the death penalty in 1972, and states went back to the drawing board. States still wanted the death penalty, but laws had to be revised. And so states came up with new rules, new procedures, new regulations, and the issue went back to the Supreme Court in 1976 in a case called Gregg versus Georgia. And the court concluded in Gregg that the new rules and procedures were going to work, that the death penalty would no longer be imposed in a way that was arbitrary, that the problem had been solved. The next major event was a study by a law professor named David Baldus, and Baldus found that, in fact, the solution didn't work, that the death penalty was still much more likely to be imposed if the offender killed a white victim. Um, And it's important to pause for a moment because people often think the death penalty is discriminatory based on the race of the offender. Uh, Most research says that it's actually the race of the victim that really matters the most. If you kill a white person, especially a white woman, especially a high status educated white woman, you're far more likely to get the death penalty than if you would have killed someone else. Um, So Baldus does an incredible study that's thought of as the best in the field. And that study gets attached to a case called McCleskey versus Kemp. McCleskey was a black man who killed a white police officer, and the McCleskey versus Kemp case goes to the Supreme Court, and Baldus presents the findings of the research. Again, those who killed a white victim were more likely to be sentenced to death in Georgia even after the new rules and procedures had been put in place. And the Supreme Court ruled in McCleskey 
that the racial disparities did not create a constitutional violation uh, for two basic reasons. One, uh, statistical patterns across thousands of cases could not be used to prove that anyone discriminated against McCleskey on purpose. And two, uh, the court was reluctant to open Pandora's box. If we rule in favor of McCleskey, then law professors and statisticians across the country are gonna team up and say that gender affects the outcome of cases, race affects the outcome of cases, physical appearance affects the outcome of cases, um, and we don't want a flood of cases challenging the constitutionality of everything from traffic stops to executions. So that's where we come in. Um, so again, Justin Marceau and I um, had the idea that Baldus had looked at whether race affects who gets a death sentence in Georgia. But most people who are sent to death row are actually never executed. Some are, some aren't. So we wanted to know what happened in the next stage of the case. Did race continue uh, to have an effect on the outcomes of cases? And we found that it did. So not only were people who killed white victims more likely to be sent to death row, after being sent to death row, those who killed white victims were also more likely to be executed. So the purpose of the study was to update uh, the work that had been done by David Baldus, a really important study in the history of the field. Um, we're sort of standing on the shoulders of a giant, David Baldus, and showing that what he found uh, turned out to be even worse than it appeared. But there was no way to know that for another 40 years because the cases take that long to work their way through the appeals. And can you walk us through some of these specific results that you guys found? I know one of the lines of the study um, in the New York Times article, they pointed out that defendants convicted of killing white victims were executed at a rate 17 times greater than those convicted of killing black victims. What else did you guys find? That's right. So um, that 17 times number is a combination of the sentencing stage and the execution stage. So when you combine uh, the multiple stages of a case, at the end of the day, uh, those who killed whites were 17 times more likely to be executed. But it's important to talk more about what that number means. So you might hear that number and think, well, if you kill a white victim, you're highly likely to be executed. That's not exactly right. Um, your chance of being executed is low no matter what. It's just that those who killed black victims were basically never executed. So one of the ways I like to, to talk about this with students is to say, it's sort of like driving on the road. If you drive a car, you're very unlikely to be killed in an accident. If you ride a motorcycle, you're very unlikely to be killed in an accident. And yet, it is true that if you ride a motorcycle, you're much more likely to be killed than if you drive a car. So to make the parallel, if you kill a black victim or a white victim, you're unlikely to be executed. And yet you're still far more likely to be executed if that victim had been white. Based on everything you guys found, what's your big takeaway for what needs to be changed based off of these findings? I think one of the big takeaways is that, um, you know, as the Black Lives Matter movement has pointed out, uh, the life of a white person is often treated as 
uh, more worthy of uh, the attention of the criminal justice system. Um, it is the death of a white person that much more often sends the criminal justice system into overdrive because the death penalty is overdrive. Um, it's the most serious sanction that we can impose. Um, a prosecutor knows that to get a death sentence is going to require an enormous amount of work. And even if the prosecutor can get a death sentence, that sentence is gonna to have to be defended on appeal for decades. And so then the question becomes, whose life is worthy of that amount of work? So a death penalty case is a longer jury selection process, a longer trial. It's actually two trials because you have a trial about whether the person is guilty and a separate trial about whether the person should be sentenced to death. Even if the jury sentences the person to death, the case will be on appeal for decades. In contrast, a lot of murder cases are plea bargained. Um, and if you'll admit you did it, then you go to prison for life, we take the death penalty off the table. So if you think about this from the perspective of legal effort or legal labor, um, whose life and death are worth the amount of work it takes to secure and defend a death sentence and ultimately to produce an execution. And so what the research shows is, in Georgia, it is the death of a white person that puts that process in motion and that justifies decades of legal work. Um, and so the big takeaway is it really connects to what the Black Lives Matter movement is saying, that the life and death of some people is treated as a bigger deal than the life and death of other people. Um, and another takeaway would be people often think of only the Supreme Court, uh, that only the Supreme Court can do something about this problem. And that's not true because uh, the Georgia State Supreme Court could take action short of the US Supreme Court. The Georgia legislature could abolish the death penalty. Um, that's what the Colorado legislature recently did. And the state of Washington, uh, the Washington Supreme Court recently struck down Washington's death penalty uh, for just this sort of reason. So what sort of impact do you hope that this study can have? I hope that the results will be um, taken seriously by the Georgia legislature. Uh, there's a, a Republican representative in Georgia who's introducing a bill in January, and we've been in touch with him about um, whether he would like us to testify to the results. Um, we've also been in touch with lawyers in Georgia who are handling uh, potential death penalty cases and actual uh, death sentences of people on death row who might raise these findings as part of an appeal. Um, and so we just hope that the results will be um, taken seriously by both legislators and appellate courts. You also worked on another study, and this time it was involving the death penalty in specifically Texas. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you found there? Sure, so um, it's important to note that Texas is uh, really the capital of capital punishment um, in the modern era, which people often think of as the Furman decision that I mentioned uh, going forward, the United States has executed uh, 1,524 people and 572 of those executions were in Texas. Uh, so about almost 40% of all US executions are in Texas. So 
uh, my colleague um, Trent Steidley and I thought it was really important to look at the state of Texas. It's curious because um, even though Texas is the place that executes more than any other state, um, it doesn't necessarily have as much research as one would suspect given its place as the leader in executions. And nobody had ever studied the entire state um, for the entire modern era. So that's what we set out to do. So we looked at the state of Texas from the 1970s to the present. And what we found was going um, a very similar to the Georgia experience, that those who killed a white woman were three times more likely uh, to be sentenced to death in Texas. And that is um, consistent with more recent research, which suggests that it's not simply the race of the victim, it's the race and gender of the victim combined. Um, and if better data were available, we would almost certainly find out that it's race, gender, and social status. So the most likely person to be sentenced to death in, in the United States is someone who kills a white woman who is high status. And so again, we thought it was important to look at Texas because not only is there less research than one would expect, no one had ever studied the entire modern period, but also because Texas is, has always been an outlier and is increasingly more and more of an outlier because many states have turned away from the death penalty. But, and Texas has seen a decline as well, uh, but it continues to be one of the states that carries out executions. You recently wrote an op-ed for the Dallas Morning News, and in that you say this poses a potential constitutional problem and a definite ethical problem. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? So the reason I use the term potential constitutional problem is because uh, the Supreme Court has never rescinded um, its, its view that was stated in McCleskey versus Kemp. So the current Supreme Court stance is that racial disparities in the death penalty don't create a constitutional problem. Uh, but that decision was made in 1987. It's an old decision, and it's, it's a decision that many people feel was made incorrectly. In fact, uh, the decision was written by Justice Powell, and it was a 5-4 decision. So if one person had flipped, it would have gone the other way. And Justice Powell was being interviewed by his biographer, who asked, if you could only change one vote in your entire um, career on the Supreme Court, what would it be? And Powell said McCleskey versus Kemp. So even the author of the McCleskey decision later had a change of heart and thought, I made the wrong decision. Racial disparities really should create a constitutional problem. We should see it as a violation of the Constitution if um, the death penalty is much more likely to be imposed in some types of cases than others based on race. But when I wrote the, the op-ed, I used the term potential constitutional problem because that decision has never been reversed. Uh, the ethical problem is the one that the Black Lives Matter movement has brought to the forefront um, because even if the Supreme Court says it's not a constitutional problem, uh, I think many people would agree that it raises um, a clear ethical problem that the death of a white person is treated as more serious by the criminal justice system than the death of a black person. 
at the beginning of this conversation, you kind of laid out some of the groundwork of the history of the death penalty. But I'm curious if you can tell us more about how the death penalty started in the United States. So the death penalty was legal in England and the colonists brought it with them and continued uh, that tradition. In fact, uh, the first execution in the United States was in Jamestown in 1608. Um, and the death penalty has continued um, throughout United States history with a few brief interruptions, including the time period after Furman when it was ruled um, unconstitutional. But it's important to note that in American history, laws were often different for whites and slaves. So to take one example of Virginia, in the state of Virginia, uh, before the Civil War, whites and slaves could both be uh, sentenced to death and executed for murder, but slaves could be sentenced to death and executed for 67 additional crimes uh, that whites could not be executed for. And some examples of those 67 are burglary and counterfeiting coins. So the list of crimes that you could be executed for was much longer for a slave um, and included things that weren't nearly as serious as murder. Uh, which is to say that race has always affected the death penalty in the United States. And so right now, more than half of the states allow the death penalty. Like you mentioned, Colorado just dropped off that list recently. Um, where are we headed as a country in terms of the death penalty? Yeah, that's a great question. So we are moving away from the death penalty. Um, so death sentences have been on the decline uh, for about 20 years. Executions have been on the decline for about 20 years. And uh, interestingly, between 1985 and 2006, no state abolished the death penalty. But between 2007 and 2020, 10 states have abolished the death penalty. And those states are New Jersey, New York, New Mexico, Illinois, Connecticut, Maryland, Delaware, Washington, New Hampshire, and Colorado just a few months ago. Um, so after a long period of no state abolishing, there has been a wave of states abolishing the death penalty. Um, why is that? People are concerned about executing innocent inmates. Uh, we know that in the modern period of the death penalty, uh, about 170 people were sent to death row and later found to be innocent and exonerated. Um, so uh, it would be um, irrational to think that we caught all our mistakes. We've certainly executed innocent people. Uh, those 170 mistakes were caught in time, but not until the person had spent um, many, many years on death row. People are concerned about the cost of the death penalty. People are less convinced that the death penalty deters. People are worried about racial disparities. Um, and in fact, uh, many conservatives have turned against the death penalty. Uh, when I testified in the Colorado legislature, the person who testi testified before me uh, was from a group called Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. Uh, and in fact, Colorado could not have abolished the death penalty without three votes in the Senate from, from Republicans. So Democrats have um, traditionally been more concerned about the death penalty than Republicans, uh, but even Republicans are showing more and more concern. Okay, and how does the United States compare to the rest of the world when it comes to the death penalty? Uh, so 70% of the nations uh, have abolished the death penalty either in law, meaning it's not on the books, 
or in practice, meaning it's on the books, but it hasn't been used in uh, more than a decade. Uh, so 70% of the world has essentially abolished the death penalty. Um, being a part of the European Union is contingent on abolishing the death penalty. So we are actually in the minority by continuing to use the death penalty. Um, the, the country that executes the most is China. Uh, there's no question about that, but there's a big question about how many people China executes because it's a closely held state secret. Uh, people estimate that China executes thousands per year, but we just don't know. Uh, we do know that second on the list is Iran, then Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Egypt, and then the United States. So those are countries we're not uh, often grouped with, uh, but when it comes to the death penalty, we are. From an academic standpoint of someone who researches the death penalty, what do you think the United States criminal justice system really needs to work on? So um, I'll focus on the death penalty. There's a really interesting um, set of experiments going on at Yale University in um, a psychology lab that's called the Baby Lab. 60 Minutes did a special about the Baby Lab. Lots of research has been published from this ongoing set of studies. And it's absolutely fascinating because the Baby Lab has shown that even pre-verbal infants want bad actors to be punished. The infants watch a puppet show, one of the puppets is bad, and the, um, the infant actually wants to take home the stuffed animal that punishes the bad stuffed animal. Um, it's very sophisticated research. It sounds more like a cartoon, but it's not. It's very sophisticated. The same baby lab has shown that uh, pre-verbal infants also are quick to divide the world into us versus them. Um, and they prefer the stuffed animal who likes the same treat that they like. Um, when given a choice between graham crackers and Cheerios, they prefer to go home with the stuffed animal that liked the same food. And in class, I talk about how, um, as humans, what the baby lab seems to tell us is that we have a desire to see bad actors punished. But we also have a desire to divide the world into us versus them, whether that is race or gender or sexual orientation or social class. And so we are um, always trying to solve this dilemma. And so our criminal justice system stems from both a desire for retribution, but it's also plagued by race and gender and class disparities because we're so quick to divide the world into us versus them. And there's no question that we could live without the death penalty. Many US states live without the death penalty. The European Union lives without the death penalty. 70% of the world lives without the death penalty. And so it is entirely conceivable that one could abolish the death penalty in order to eliminate racial disparities in the execution of citizens while simultaneously trying to fix the rest of the criminal justice system. To read more about Scott Phillips' research featured in the New York Times or his op-ed in the Dallas Morning News, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. 
Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer, James Swearingen arranged our theme, and Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. I'm Nicole Militello, and this is Radio Ed.